This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. It's Evan Shinners here. You know what the goal of this podcast is. It's to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach, to help you gain more appreciation for his music, and hopefully all music, by listening in a different way. This is an interview episode. I aim to bring onto this show people who come from various backgrounds, but are somehow all united around Bach, and at least in this first season discuss the art of fugue. So, who is the guest today? Well, another question, is there a most knowledgeable Bachian alive? Or if there is, then Christoph Wolf is certainly in contention for that title, and he is today's guest. The former head of the Bach Archive in Leipzig, Mr. Christoph Wolf, is quite the academic and scholar, emeritus professor at Harvard on the graduate faculty of Juilliard from 2010 until 2018. But not only Bach research, Wolf was also the former chair of the Academy for Mozart Forschung, that's Mozart research. I've been reading this man's book since I was 16 years old. I must say that it was quite the privilege and highlight along my personal Bach road to interview him. His influence is inescapable. You cannot run from the big bad wolf. There is scarcely a time when I don't flip through his books to clarify a particular detail, idea, or concept. And I bet every serious Bach player, lover, scholar in the world owns either Bach, Essays on his life and music. That's a series of essays on diverse aspects from his life and work. I'm constantly consulting this book. The New Bach Reader, that's very highly recommended. It's essentially a book in which every contemporary document about Bach or with regard to Bach, including even things like his receipts to a liquor tax collector or Bach's review of the musical proficiency of the choristers entering the Thomas Choir. Very interesting book. Johann Sebastian Bach, the learned musician, is Mr. Wolf's great biography. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2001. And as recently as 2020, Bach's musical universe, the composer and his work. Now, aside from the books and countless articles in scholarly journals, being the director of the Bach archive in Leipzig means that he oversaw a great deal of the publication of the NBA the real NBA, the Neue Bachausgabe, the new Bach edition. He saw the completion of it, as he mentions in the interview. If you pick up a copy, for example, therefore, of the Baron Rider edition of the Goldberg Creations, his name alone appears as the editor. It's a bit of a serious job. But for such a serious job, and for a man so deeply involved in one of the most precise areas of knowledge, he's very far from being judgmental or close-minded. I mention that because it's easy, especially now, with the dominance of historical performance practice, to fall into that trap. To say, form a camp, when the question is almost a divisive one about how could Bach's music sound versus how should it sound. But when Herr Wolf talked about the Goldberg Variations, he mentioned Gustav Leonhardt and Rudolf Serkin. He can appreciate both. And I felt that this interview would be a good interview to occupy the last guest spot on season one, because yes, there will be a season two, since we discussed the last fugue of the Art of Fugue. Hence, I waited almost a year to release this interview until the episodes had cut up with it, but now here we are, one fugue away from the end, and this last interview on season one. So thank you very much for listening. Sit back, relax, and enjoy, because this is a big one, folks. This is Christoph Wolf. The one and only Christoph Wolf. And here. Christoph Wolf. Christoph Wolf, thank you very much for being on the show. 
Very pleased to be here. You are certainly one of the most important minds on current Bach thought. And I figure it's really impossible to do research about Bach without crossing the wonderful work which you've laid down. So the question that most of us, I'm sure, have on our minds is, what do you think about Jimi Hendrix? Jimi Hendrix, the, uh, the musician. Okay, why? <laughs> you know, I love the way he performs, uh, and that's fine. But it doesn't really uh, further my research or any knowledge about J.S. Bach. It only uh, tells me uh, uh, that uh, music has come a long way since J.S. Bach in the 18th century. One of the most fascinating things about your work is that in the year 2000, when you published The Learned Musician, it seemed like we knew all there was to know. And then 20 years later, Bach's musical universe hits the shelf and there's all this new knowledge. So what can we expect in another 20 years? Well, I think Bach research uh, continues. And I'm very pleased that uh, it uh, continues because there is so much to discover all the time. And, uh, you know, it reflects somehow the depth and breadth of the music of this uh, unique composer. And do you have a personal favorite piece of writing about Bach, be it research or, or even poetry or flight of fancy, just some, some, some piece of words, you know, that made you feel like, ah, that person, that person got it, that person really felt it? Well, I think one of uh, my most fascinating readings uh, as a, as a, a uh, young person was Albert Schweitzer's Bach book, which uh, I think fascinated me. I only learned much later that, you know, his biographical studies and uh, also some of his other writings uh, uh, were, were not really uh, getting to the core of Bach. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I think he opened my heart for listening in a way that uh, I think I'm uh, always uh, uh, grateful uh, for. And I think it also, uh, he also opened my curiosity about uh, this person and uh, his music. And he was, he was a, an extremely young man when he published the first edition of the, of the biography. Yes, he, uh, he was a young man, a young academic. He just had switched from theology to medicine. Uh, you know, he spent his life uh, uh, in Africa as a, uh, a doctor uh, uh, to help, uh, you know, the uh, poor black uh, villages in Central Africa. So, I mean, the human aspect of his uh, uh, life also is, of course, something that, uh, 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 you know, is of great importance. And I think it relates, uh, you know, the music of Bach to uh, his way of uh, uh, being uh, ready to help humanity on a level that goes much beyond the art. And you yourself are the son of a theologian. Do you wake up on Sundays and do you know this is the Sunday which Bach wrote this particular cantata for. I do wake up uh, 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 that way, but, uh, you know, I'm no longer, uh, you know, a church-going person. Uh, it's a strong aspect of my background, but, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a different person than I uh, used to be. <laughs> do you ever listen to 
Do you ever think, okay, it's the second Sunday after Advent. Let's listen to the second Sunday after Advent cantata. Do you ever celebrate the year this way? Sometimes I sometimes do that because I feel that uh, uh, Bach's music really is related to the seasons of the uh, church year. And, and therefore, uh, you know, I think it, it uh, helps to understand the context of where the music is, uh, you know, originating. I have a question that I admit, as an amateur Bach scholar, I have really failed to find the, the answer to, which is, where does the seal come from? And, and how did this become the sort of official logo of, of Bach? You know, the seal as such is a type of a seal, uh, a mirror monogram, uh, that uh, is quite standard in, uh, you know, Bach's time. If you look at the um, uh, publications of Johann Matheson, uh, the uh, uh, writer and music theorist and composer, uh, you see that his initials JM uh, are also mirrored and, uh, you know, he had that uh, uh, as his uh, seal. So that uh, is the the origin, you know, a standard uh, mirror monogram. Um, but the way Bach's uh, was created, you know, with the crest around it and the crown is um, uh, something that Bach did not invent. I assume uh, we have no particular knowledge I assume it was a gift of Prince Leopold when he was in Kürten, because uh, he used to have a different monogram when he worked in Weimar. So uh, I think the earliest uh, occurrence of this uh, uh, famous JSB uh, uh, mirror image uh, monogram occurs in documents of 1722. And this would have been a wax seal which he was sealing his his letters with. Exactly. Well, the seal would probably be a metal, uh, most likely silver or, uh, you know, some other uh, metal stamp that you would uh, impress on uh, uh, wax. And so, and so we have this image because we still have actual physical wax that Bach himself sealed with this metal stamp. Absolutely. Yes. Wow. Yes. Fascinating. You have mentioned before that one of the hardest things for us to imagine is the time management of this man, uh, because his output and his duties are, are astounding. And perhaps you could correct me, I think there's one volume in the Neue Bachausgabe just dedicated to the sketches of Bach and things that were crossed out, uh, drafts, as it were, but it's so, so few. So does this mean that Bach really wrote most of his works in just one go? I think for the most part, he wrote uh, his works straight through. Um, and um, uh, he didn't make the kind of sketches that uh, Beethoven uh, is famous for. I mean, he really labored over, uh, you know, uh, shaping a musical theme uh, until, you know, he uh, he had it in its proper shape and then could uh, start working. And then he uh, also sketched out certain elaborations uh, of thematic motivic processes and so forth. We do not have anything like it for Bach. I think Bach uh, started by forming his ideas in his head and then uh, put it down, uh, put them down, uh, you know, rather speedily. Uh, and um, he 
made mistakes or he wanted to uh, make corrections. Uh, it's for that reason that he never wrote into, uh, uh, let's say, um, uh, folded manuscripts. He wrote sheets after sheets so that if he uh, you know made a boo-boo somewhere uh, he uh, he would not lose the whole thing so he could replace a single uh, sheet or bifolio uh, uh, and then uh, replace it for the most part uh, we uh, know that he uh, wrote uh, the compositions quite he didn't have time to labor over uh, uh, sketches and so forth. And, you know, only in a number of uh, uh, very peculiar instances where he really hit uh, a hard spot. You know, we uh, see that he uh, wrote a sketch. He sometimes did this uh, at the bottom of the page where he was, uh, you know, notating the score. In this sort of antiquated I'm not sure how you call that sort of notation, the tablature notation or something. Which tablature notation, yeah, that's keyboard tablature notation, which is shorthand and, and didn't uh, use much space. And he could easily uh, use that in order to try out certain things. Yeah, I, I love imagining that, that all this composition took place at a desk and not the romanticized image that we get of the, the composer at the piano chain smoking cigarettes and crumbling up papers and throwing it over the shoulder that all of Bach's composition took place in relative silence at a desk. How silent was it really? Well, I think, you know, some compositions, uh, especially keyboard compositions, are probably uh, notated improvisations and worked out improvisations. So, uh, you know, we certainly do have works that he um, uh, initiated by performing at the keyboard, organ or harpsichord or clavichord. Uh, but for vocal works or concertos, in, instrumental ensemble works, and you know, also I think quite a number of keyboard works, he uh, worked it out on the desk. And uh, you know, there is one reference to uh, you know the well-tempered clavier, the first part of the well-tempered clavier, that he started this. Uh, when he was locked up in Weimar by the uh, by the Duke, uh, because uh, you know he uh, irritated the um, uh, the Duke uh, with his uh, abrupt departure and and uh, acceptance of a uh, of a post uh, at a neighboring court. So uh, you know he was uh, put into an arrest uh, room and uh, apparently was given paper and, and pen, but had no keyboard. So uh, there's a later report that he started uh, writing out the preludes and fugues of the well-tempered clavier under these conditions. Right, where time hung heavy on his hands or whatever the, the phrase is. Exactly. A couple of questions about your life with, with Bach. You were, I believe, in your early 30s when the Hand exemplar of the Goldberg Variations was discovered. Was this the most exciting a single Bach discovery in your life? Uh, I wouldn't put it that way. I think the first uh, um, uh, exciting discovery happened uh, when I was working on my dissertation. But definitely, I mean, the uh, the Goldberg uh, canons, uh, the discovery uh, in uh, actually exactly uh, 1975, uh, was a very important and perhaps in many ways the most significant discovery that I came across. But, you know, the initial discovery 
uh, when I was, uh, you know, in my early 20s, was a manuscript uh, in the uh, State Library in Berlin um, that contained uh, a, a copy of uh, Bach, um, a copy by Bach of a Magnificat by the Italian composer Antonio Caldara. Uh, and uh, it, it happened at, at the moment when I was in the process of reconstructing uh, Bach's uh, uh, library of other composers so that uh, I could examine what he learned from other composers. And uh, I saw that, you know, this Caldara manuscript, which was the first one of a number of uh, uh, manuscripts in, in his hand, uh, that helped me uh, to understand how, uh, you know, Bach self-studied seriously the music of other composers because he never really had a composition teacher. Right. I, I wanted to ask you about your, your graduate work and those other composers on his shelf. Do you know which music from other composers perhaps he adored playing over and over again? Well, I think the important thing is that uh, all the uh, pieces that he copied from other composers' works, he also performed. So he did not use them only for, uh, you know, reading and studying. Uh, you know, we know that he uh, um, um, went as far back as the works of Palestrina. Uh, so 16th century music, we know of no other uh, 18th century uh, contemporary of Bach who would so uh, who would go so far back in the history of music. And then, you know, we have Frescobaldi and we have uh, Froberger uh, uh, and Buxtehude and, uh, you know, the major composers, instrumental composers of uh, 17th century music, whom he devoted a lot of uh, attention to. Uh, and then, you know, he went to uh, study his contemporaries. He copied works by Handel. Uh, he, uh, we don't know that Handel copied works of Bach, but Bach certainly uh, 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 performed Handel and Porpora and uh, Pergolesi, so uh, uh, his contemporaries, uh, and, and he went as uh, uh, far into the most modern uh, composers that he could put his hands on. It's fascinating. In the meantime, you were the director of the most prestigious Bach archive in the world, and you oversaw much of the publication of the of the Neue Bach Ausgabe, which um, is the most complete and sort of critical reproduction of the music itself. Are there mistakes in this Neue Bach Ausgabe, which the editors, faithfully trying to reproduce everything with accuracy, faithfully reproduce a possible mistake of Bach's. There are mistakes uh, in there. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the mistakes were, uh, of course, uh, uh, accidental, not uh, uh, related to uh, poor scholarship. In fact, you know, all the editors of the Neue Bachausgabe were extremely serious and careful uh, uh, scholars. But what, uh, uh, you know, is recognized as mistakes uh, today relates mostly to the uh, discovery of new source materials or a uh, uh, re-evaluation of the available uh, uh, sources. And therefore, during my time at the Bach Archive, 
uh, we not only celebrated the completion of uh, the Neue Bachausgabe in 2006, but also started in 2010 the uh, um, series of revised volumes. So uh, there are a number of volumes uh, in the Neue Bachausgabe that in the meantime have been issued in revised uh, form. So they replace what used to be, let's say, the edition of the Bimana Mass to uh, uh, give you perhaps the most prominent uh, uh, example. So the uh, Bimana Mass has been edited twice for the uh, uh, new, new Bachausgabe, uh, one in 1956 and the second time in 2010 or 11 uh, in, the, in a revised uh, volume. How much music is missing? How, how many of the cantatas are actually missing the, the St. Luke Passion? Uh, how much music are we really missing from Bach? Well, I wish I could give you exact information. Uh, we uh, do have some uh, uh, clues based on uh, um, vocal works where we do have the published texts published during Bach's lifetime, but we do not have the scores, uh, like the uh, uh, score of the uh, music of uh, the St. Mark Passion. We do have its text. Uh, and we have uh, also texts of quite a few um, secular cantatas uh, uh, where the music is completely lost. Uh, we have uh, much less of a clue uh, when it comes to instrumental work. So um, we, uh, we can take a guess because in uh, both Curtin and in Weimar, we have uh, some information on the uh, deliveries of paper to Bach for, you know, the purpose of composition. Uh, but, you know, when we stack up the compositions uh, that were uh, composed in Weimar or in Kürten, uh, we see that, uh, you know, there are uh, several hundred bifolios uh, that uh, must have existed and would probably not have been thrown away, which contained works by uh, uh, instrumental works uh, and possibly also vocal works by Bach. So uh, it's it's hard to come by an exact estimate, uh, but uh, it's quite sure uh, that uh, a considerable number of his uh, works are lost. I venture to say, however, that the pieces that were important to him and to his students and to his uh, family uh, that those have not disappeared. Uh, it tells me that if the St. Mark Passion uh, is lost, it was not a work that Bach estimated in the same way as his St. Matthew Passion and the St. John Passion. I mean, that's, uh, you know, a suspicion I have, but uh, I think it's quite reasonable. And speaking of missing music, the, the Art of Fugue, do you, do you want to see the conclusion or has it sort of because of the way that it has gone down in history is it has it served you better as a mystery well uh, you know it's definitely a mystery and it still is uh, i do believe that the work was actually uh, um, completed or nearly completed and um, you know the uh, crucial uh, aspect is uh, the um, is related to the uh, final 
quadruple fugue. Um, and, uh, you know, that breaks off after uh, 270 plus uh, uh, measures. It's the longest fugue he ever uh, uh, wrote, even as a fragment. Uh, and so I think what was missing uh, was not a very long piece, uh, but uh, a segment that uh, combined the four themes. Um, and if you want to compose a quadruple fugue, you better start with a combination of the themes in order to find out whether they can be combined. And so I think Bach sketched out, he probably did, he most likely did not do a fair copy of the combinatorial part, but I think it was in a way completed in his head and also in terms of uh, uh, some drafts that uh, he tried out. Uh, but unfortunately, these drafts have been lost as uh, we also lost other materials from the Art of Fugue, although uh, what we do have of the work really gives us a, a very good idea of um, the overall shape of the piece and uh, also tells us that what is missing is really the end of this uh, very last quadruple fugue. Now, is it is it possible that it could turn up or is it is it really lost is it is someone going to take down a painting and find the find it on the backing of the painting no it's 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 quite possible that it is uh, 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 still surviving somewhere uh, we know uh, that uh, the um, manuscript was in the hand uh, was was after 1750 after Bach's death in the hands of his son Carl Philip Emanuel um, and uh, Carl Philip Emanuel lent it out uh, to, uh, you know, uh, colleagues he trusted. And uh, so it's, it's possible that uh, uh, some material ended up uh, and uh, may uh, still turn up uh, uh, someday. Uh, I wouldn't give up hope, but uh, I think it's a slim, very slim possibility. And uh, and this this note in the obituary that says that the conclusion would have contained all four themes and they would have been note by note inverted is that to be taken literally or is that sort of going along with the rhetorical style of of the day? No, I think it is uh, to be taken uh, uh, literally. Otherwise, uh, Carl Philip Emanuel would not have. Uh, uh, put it that way. So I think it is a deliberate um, attempt at uh, uh, mirroring uh, the um, uh, four parts, uh, as uh, Bach did also in the two mirror uh, uh, fugues that uh, have survived uh, in complete form. Right. Uh, you've called the Art of Fugue, or at least parts of the Art of Fugue, uncharted territory. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, it is, in a way, the first systematic exploration of the techniques of uh, uh, fugue uh, as demonstrated on the basis of uh, settings that constitute real movements. So uh, prior to Bach, uh, fugue was a technique uh, and not really a genre. Uh, and uh, the quality of a genre was defined by Bach 
uh, in his two uh, volumes of the Well-Tempered Clavier. And uh, probably in conjunction with the second part, that is in the late 1730s, he developed the idea uh, not to demonstrate fugues in uh, 24 different keys, uh, but to uh, exemplify on the basis of a single idea, uh, the uh, fugal techniques as they would then uh, constitute uh, a genre that uh, uh, would result in individual movements of uh, a, a different uh, makeup. And you can tell from the way the Art of Fugue is composed that, uh, you know, he starts uh, with a retrospective approach. In other words, he starts with two, few, two uh, with four fugues that sound like uh, um, 16th century uh, uh, music. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the style progresses uh, in a remarkable way because he animates the subject in uh, uh, rhythmic ways, in uh, uh, melodic ways, uh, he modernizes it. In fact, to some, uh, in in some movements, he writes, uh, uh, you know, stylistically in his most modern uh, way. And the canons, for example, are perhaps the best examples of music that actually foreshadows music composed after 1750. So I think uh, the uh, art of fugue as a practical textbook exemplifies his legacy uh, as a fugue writer. And I think he quite deliberately uh, wanted to uh, focus on the fugue in his uh, um, last decade. I mean, the fugue, the, the, the art of fugue was not written, you know, within just a few years. He spent quite some time. Uh, on it and he uh, expanded it and he uh, finally decided to publish it uh, uh, and you know he happened to start the uh, printing process but wasn't able to um, see through the completed project now i i may have misunderstood this but did you also hypothesize that the klavierübung could have eventually been understood by bach as a as a six part set, that sort of six-part symmetry that he found throughout his life, which would have eventually included the Well-Tempered Clavier Book Two and the Art of Fugue as the parts five and six? Well, I think, uh, you know, Bach deliberately didn't give the uh, uh, Art of Fugue the title or subtitle Klavierübung. So I think he considered it a separate project. I, I believe that the four parts of the Klavierübung are self-contained and contain the uh, most advanced ways of uh, modern keyboard music. I mean, if you think of the um, aria with 30 variations, the so-called Goldberg variations, you know, there is nothing like it that, uh, you know, ever uh, occurred prior to Bach. So I think he wanted to have music for performance presented in the Klavierübung 
the art of fugue also, of course, is to be performed, but it has a theoretical element that uh, the Klavierübung does not have. So I, I would keep it separately. Talking about Bach's legacy and talking about him preserving the legacy perhaps of other composers, did he somehow become aware of the fact that maybe the art was, was dying, that no generation after him would have the same compositional technique and that it was up to him to preserve the art? I don't think he uh, thought of it that way. I mean, Bach was a very uh, dedicated teacher. Uh, you know, he had dozens and dozens of students and he uh, he was sure that the art of composition would proceed, uh, that it would most likely proceed in very different ways from what he would be uh, doing because he could see that on the, uh, on the basis of the music his own sons were uh, writing and he did not disapprove of that. But I think he, uh, when, when it comes to the art of fugue, he was thinking of uh, uh, putting together uh, something that would summarize his uh, own knowledge and the way he could push uh, the limits of the art of fugal composition. I don't think that he would um, think that this would be the end of fugal writing, but I believe he said, you know, this is as far as I can take it. And uh, maybe uh, future generations would uh, look at it and maybe learn something from it, even if they would depart from it in their own way. And, and we certainly have, which is sort of my, my last question, which is that I, I feel the young Bach is searching f sort of for a concrete form, like you've called it uh, the autonomous design. And in at least the last decade of his life, he offers us these canonic pieces, which are not necessarily, they don't seem to be final statements. They seem to pose the question of, could it be carried out in 14 additional canons? Could, could something else be done on it? And I sort of wonder if we are carrying on Bach's legacy through every strange computer variation that we have on this, through every recording of the artifugue on electric guitars or, or harps or, or whatever, whatever that is. No, I think you are absolutely right. I think Bach's legacy is a challenge. And I think that uh, the composer himself knew that it uh, was a challenge and he left it at that. And uh, I think uh, composers like uh, uh, Mozart and Beethoven accepted that challenge, went their own ways. But uh, uh, I think in quite a number of ways, uh, you know, later composers, and it goes, uh, you know, well into the 21st century, composers and performers uh, see Bach's uh, art as a continuing challenge. And the, the good thing is that it's a wonderful challenge because it's so uh, rich and it's so much fun for both the uh, uh, performer and the listener. I announced on Instagram that I would be interviewing you and I invited people to write in a few questions. The first one is from a user who asks, why did Bach do the entire coffee house, coffee cantata thing? Was it for exposure? What was that all about? Well, in a way, uh, he uh, celebrated uh, the most fashionable way to uh, spend uh, an afternoon or an evening uh, uh, you know, among friends, uh, 
drinking um, uh, coffee. So coffee was a commodity that was fashionable at the time, uh, you know, much more fashionable than, let's say, uh, wine or uh, liqueur as a, uh, you know, a, a convivial uh, way of uh, being together. So uh, it's just uh, a little advertisement for uh, this kind of uh, uh, gathering at a uh, coffee house. Uh, uh, and we have to imagine that it was, uh, uh, you know, a, a very luxurious outfit, the Zimmermann coffee house. It's not a Starbucks outfit. So, uh, uh, you know, we have to see the context as quite fashionable. Uh, another Instagram user says, What's the first BWV that pops into your head right now? And who are the top three Bach interpreters that also come into your head? Well, I think uh, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the Goldberg Variations uh, uh, that uh, come to my um, uh, head. And I'm thinking of very many uh, performers whom uh, I admire. I mean, it, uh, you know, is Gustav Leonhardt or Robert Hill on the... Uh, um, a harpsichord, you know, it's Anders Schiff or Rudy Serkin, whom I heard uh, uh, perform the piece. He never recorded it, uh, but you know, it's it, it's a piece that uh, comes in so many uh, uh, performances and is so exciting. And uh, perhaps uh, uh, the piece that uh, shows Bach from uh, a side that uh, no other piece does, namely his virtuoso uh, uh, abilities and, you know, his intellectual penetration of the material. Um, do you play Bach every day? Not every day. Uh, you know, I used to play uh, Bach uh, a lot. You know, I, I was brought up as a performer. Uh, but um, when I got full time into musicology, I uh, uh, stopped uh, really performing in public, uh, but I kept performing for myself and performing with my children. Um, now uh, with uh, uh, my uh, uh, hands uh, uh, plagued by, um, uh, you know, with arthritis, uh, uh, I, uh, I have trouble uh, doing it. But, you know, I, I continue moving my fingers and I have a great, take great enjoyment with my clavichord, which uh, you know, gives me possibility to intimately uh, deal with Bach's and other composers' music. Now, are you aware that at least in one academic circle, you are known as the big bad wolf? No, I'm not. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. <gasps> okay, well, there it is. Just a little bit of parting advice. Uh, could you, as one of the most knowledgeable people in the world about one of the greatest geniuses who ever lived, what, what would you say to someone who says, excuse me, but I don't see the point in learning about music from this particular culture, from someone who died 270 years ago? I don't see the point in learning about that more than my current musical taste. Well, uh, I have not found a person who would address me uh, uh, that way. Um, but uh, if it were to happen, I, uh, I would say, uh, listen to the music of Bach, uh, uh, and uh, um, if 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 you listen um, with an open ear and an open heart, there are lots of questions that uh, come up, and they may not be scholarly questions, but they may be questions 
that relate to the fact, you know, what makes it, what, what qualities in Bach's music touch you immediately so that uh, it, it, it enriches uh, your, your mind and uh, it, it touches your feelings. And, uh, you know, this is something that I think uh, opens up all kinds of possibilities in exploring music much beyond uh, the paper on which it was written or printed. Well, Herr Wolf, it's been a, a true delight to have you on the, on the podcast here, and so thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for listening, folks. One question my devoted listeners realized that I had forgot to ask Mr. Wolf was, if you had to explain what the art of fugue is to a child, what would you say? He kindly wrote me back a response, and this is what he said. Think of it foremost as a set of variations on a single melody. The initial melody or theme is easy to remember and it's fun to recognize wherever it appears, even if upside down or modified in other ways. It opens every movement and then penetrates the musical texture by constantly changing itself. The whole work is much too long for you and the music gets more and more challenging, but if you just take the first few movements, it is fun to pursue the return of a traveling melody. So thank you very much, Mr. Wolf, for that beautiful response. Thanks to Robert Hill for arranging this interview. Thanks to all my fans who take the time to write me and give me feedback and donations and suggestions for future episodes. You could be sure that once we are finished with this next fugue, the 14th, the final fugue in the Art of Fugue, I'll be coming out with episodes on a more regular basis because I won't be attacking such a giant work as systematically. But for now, we have one final fugue to tackle, and that's the unfinished fugue. You've been waiting for it for quite some time. You are listening to the WTF Bach Podcast. Do you want to partner with us? Write us at the WTF Bach Podcast. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at WTF Bach. Help keep this podcast alive. Support us. Find the links in the episode description. What a great day to be listening to WTF Bach. Thank you for listening. 